mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defense. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Melcast. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, let's start with the Leinster versus Stade Toulouse semi-final in Lansdowne Road on Saturday afternoon in the baking sunlight. The only day of sunlight. Maybe it was because Leinster were playing the best bloody rugby of all time. The whirlwind. I thought it was a whirlwind rather than a lovely day. It was a super game to be at. Great atmosphere. And uh, it was one of the really enjoyable things about the match was um, just that the crowds are more raucous. I we I said this in the last podcast as well. Murray Kinsel was saying about the Munster game that it was it was the best atmosphere in the in the stadium since we beat the All Blacks. That game I wasn't at it. It looked better than the All Blacks game. I was at the Leinster match and it was a much better atmosphere than the All Blacks game. And loads of people. So we we tried to get a train there. You know, early enough. Yeah. Ten past two. It was absolutely packed. Couldn't get on it. So then he said, I'll wait for the next one with the number of other people in the terrace or the, the platform. And that was absolutely packed. You couldn't <laughs> turn a sweet in your mouth. Um so then I ended up, yeah, getting there on, on foot and big crowd and, and big crowd go crack and a lot to be a lot to be cheered for. Um, well it was like we had great seats uh, on the 22. The Leinster were attacking into the first half. And uh, I don't know, I, I, even when, when um, DuPont scored and we were, I mean, there was a weird kind of moment in, in, at the start of it where it seemed like there was a Leinster knock on. So whatever Leinster did was going to get called back if they scored a try. And then they turned it over. So they'd had their advantage. And there was a Toulouse knock on. And Toulouse knock on first. Then there was a Leinster knock on. So Leinster, but Leinster weren't called for knock on. So it was like advantage from the Toulouse knock on. And they, Definitely got their advantage, you know. They made forty yards, and then they turned the ball over and conceded ninety yards immediately. And you're you're kind of left with this like jurisprudence question about <laughs> <laughs> about about how to do, you know, how did how did how to var this? Anyway, I was like, no, they're just going to give that try, and I was like, I'm not worried at all. No, we had. I, I I thought there was a. I thought if Leinster had scored, they weren't going to get it because I saw the I saw the two knock. I saw the Toulouse knock on first, and then Leinster knocked it on, and then. I thought to myself, right, well, the referees don't tend to blow it up anymore. They tend to let it play, and then they just know they've got that safety net so they yeah. can call it back. So they don't have to officiate it properly. So even if Leinster score, it doesn't matter. Like they can score this brilliant try. It's still going to be called back for the Toulouse knock on. Is there a statute of limitations, though, on phases or anything like no, that? No, not. No, no, no. It's just, so so I, I think that Gibbo took the decision that he did because he was sort of going, ah, look, we're not really going to score here anyway, so I'll... yeah." Yeah, it felt like that. It, that it was felt right like that to me. And then Dupont picked it up, and he was kind of going, well, I'm going to get blown up here, but, you know, played a whistle. And then he kept on going, and he went, no, I'm not. Mm. Um, so it, it called to mind, uh, we were talking about uh, previous Lancer to lose games in the semi-final of 2011. Yeah. Uh, great game, but it uh, started with a very curious to lose try as well. They missed a kick, hit the post, scored a try off the rebound, Ian Hunter style. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. oh. And um, I was I, I was looking at it going like, yeah, 
I was just going, we're still going to win this game by plenty. I felt it was, I felt it was a blip uh, in the immortal words of Philip Brown. I didn't think it like, I didn't think it upset momentum. Um, it clearly, it clearly did upset me in in a small way, but I just thought like we're just going to roar back into this. Yeah. If anything, it took the gloss off the best pass of the season. Uh, <laughs> Tyke Furlong throwing this like skip pass out to the out to Hugo Keenan, who made a lovely uh, inside break or outside inside break. Um, Leinster, uh, it's one of it's been one of my. Um, Oh, this is one of my consistent thoughts for the last like five years, certainly probably longer of watching rugby. The most underrated skill in the game is passing, and the kind of like the, there's a bit of like oh, I can't believe this big lad can pass. It's so funny, and it's just like it's not funny. Like he literally plays rugby for a living. He should be able to pass. Maybe that was like a particularly good pass because that is really hard to do. But like they should all be able to pass, and let the quality of Lancers passing should be really like. It's, it should be really recognised as the key to their game. The passing was so good. It makes all the lines work. Because running patterns is like, yeah, follow the man, whatever. But it's the passing and the choice of pass. Ross Maloney was, is getting a lot of recognition for his pullback passes, but he also had a flat pass in the middle of the pitch. Flat and hard, and you're going, like a long pass to make. Um, it, did, it hasn't got the same sort of attention as Ty's big pass, but it's not quite as spectacular. But it's a lovely pass. It's a pass three-quarter we'll be proud of. And as you say... It's like these, like these lads are the pros, and you know if you're if a pro, you're like a well coordinated athlete, and maybe that's the standard should be expected of a lot of people. But it's it's not typical, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a great skill to have. Like I remember being very impressed in um, in uh, Pat Lamb's really great season with Connacht, how good Ali Muldowney was in that middle of the pitch role. Uh, you know he's like a big second row who was an, enough of a threat as a carrier, uh, but also had the very nice distribution skills, which you see uh, Maloney, you know, that he could he could take a contact and offload, he could drop a late pass out the back, and he could just give, her, give and take a normal pass. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not revolutionary, it's more evolutionary. I'm glad you said Ali Muldowney's... Uh, name because I was I was certainly thinking about him and I I think it's worth coming back to to Ross Maloney and then about the passing we talked about how principled Leinster are last week in in the aftermath of of Leicester and how they've they have so many of these principles that they're able to write themselves very quickly when they're able to rebalance themselves very quickly very sort of heavy base that if they got toppled over they just they um, they centre, they recenter themselves, and I, I, the, the Toulouse try that Dupont scored is a perfect example. That rather than sort of thinking, "Oh my God, we've been, you know, doing ever so well," and then fate has struck against us, seven like you know, we're seven three down despite playing all the rugby. It was just like, again, the students, this is just a blip. It's just like normal service will resume, and they weren't put off it in the slightest. So, the, I remember listening to. A show on the radio a number of years back, and they were talking about they were talking about people, but maybe they're talking about parenting, and they were but probably like the sort of but about childhood as well. So the two of them, how they interact with each other, and they were saying like, look, the the most important thing in 
in a kid's life is their parents. Like, you know, all the rest of the stuff, uh, like you add, you add them all up, they're still not as important as that one thing. And particularly that sort of idea of confidence that you get. So like if you're from a, a reassuring house where there's, and they go through all the sort of the characteristics of what that looks like, and they go, you just you grow up confident because you get a second chance at stuff. It's not like everything has to work out for you. And you might come through if you're freakishly talented or if you've had like outrageously good luck. And they're just saying, you know, look, if you come up in that environment, you believe that you get second chances. You believe the way this is the world works. And by believing it, funnily enough, that's the way it does. And it's that sort of same principles-based approach. So the reason I was talking about that so much is that um, Stuart Lancaster gave an interview to Tom Fordis from the BBC, but pertinently from BBC North. He's like Fordis is from Leeds, so he he knows Lancaster from when Lancaster was at Leeds, and he like he was his beat reporter. I'm pretty sure he was his beat reporter. He's probably like I don't know if he's working for the BBC or if he's working for another journalist outlet and um, he's a northern lad so he wouldn't have had the sort of the southern media animus towards Lancaster when he was when he got the English job he would have been supportive of him and um, he'd interviewed him before and Lancaster was going back and he was talking about at uh, at Leinster what it's like and he you know Lancaster talking about the, the, the players how good they are there how many of them are coming through but then he, he said like you know you need to have your kicking policy and your attack policy and your set piece policy and the way he was using policy it was like they thought through so it, it's actually like a I don't know whether they have it written down I'd say excuse me I'd say he does but a formal document that you've written down things, and I, I don't know what goes into it, but like once you start thinking about it, you're going, well, like what's my objectives with this? And then how am I going to pursue those objectives? And then what are the risks to the way we pursue these? And then how are we going to mitigate those risks? And, you know, when is it appropriate to do this and that? So you're talking about, oh, passing is the most important thing, except the other most important thing. So Leinster get into their shape very, very quickly. They know where the ball is going very, very quickly. And they're able to kick as well as to pass. And you see all of this stuff combine. And I think in the same base, like, you know, how, how principles-based that they are, how just coherent it was, like mm. how machine-like it is. But it takes so much organization to get to that, that it's... Uh, it's it's so unusual to see. You, you you just don't see it that often, and like you see it from Man City and you see it from Liverpool. And you know, like when you're watching Man City, it's like watching an algorithm. And it, 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 like I'd be critical of it. It's just going, Jesus, hard to cheer for these guys. But like, and maybe maybe people from outside Leinster see Leinster like that. But I, I'd imagine because there's so many homegrown players, it's not quite the same. Well, I, no, I was just thinking uh, something struck me during the game that. Um, where I had, I was in the aftermath of the Six Nations, in particular the way some of the things that France did and some of the things that uh, Entomac did, where you had the kicking straight down the pitch, and there was these incidents where Entomac got the ball in the 22 following a Leinster kick, and you're going like, I know exactly what he's going to do. He's going to kick long down the middle of the pitch, and Leinster knew exactly what he was going to do. And the two sweepers were generally Sexton and Gibson Park, and they like started out wide, but they knew he was going to kick, so they closed into the middle, took the ball, Sexton ran either side, and he kicked 
depending on what side he was on, he kicked to the side that Gibson Park was on, and he let him do the chase and bring everyone on the side and put pressure on them both both times. And it was just like I was like, this is like four plays. I know exactly what everyone's going to do. And then eventually there was one kick where I think Ramos was taking it, and it was it was kind of it came from a weird situation, and he was just like. Just got to get to the touchline here because it needs to stop yes. the game here. Yeah. And, it, and it was just like, oh, this has broken the cycle of like program patterns. It's just like, I need to, I need to cut this because we're all in a mess. And we're like, there was a bad pass that got to me. Yeah. It bounced from, I think, from Antamic. And he just went, no, just, just got to get to this touchline and we need to reset here. Yeah. And I was just like, the idea, and, and Toulouse do chuck it around off the cuff an awful lot. But there's like the idea that. <clears throat> Because they're French, they're making it up as they go along, and they're good. And because they're Irish, they're just following rules. Is I think facetious, and I think it gets propagated by some certain parties in the media. <laughs> but yeah, the I, thing I, about the thing about the Entomac uh, kicking game is when he was doing it with France. France had a very good, um, very hard-working chase, and they closed the space much better uh, with the Toulouse team. The Toulouse team are big and tired uh, their their chase wasn't as good as it was with France but it's also just more predictable when during during the Six Nations like I was so struck by the fact that Entomac had the discipline to stay with that game and to just go I know people expect me or I'm putting myself into his boots here but I know people expect me to do the flare thing I'm literally going to, to keep on kicking this ball back down the middle until they sort of panic and go people might think this is boring or I'll, I'll put it out now because our players are sufficiently out of position. Um, so you were going to say something there. I, I think that Leinster were predictable doing that, but I think like it was, it was a good predictable thing. Yeah, I, I don't think, I don't no. think, I don't think there's yeah. any problem with it. Like the fact that, that they got the fittest guy in their team in Gibson Park to do the chasing and put everybody else on. And it meant that like, he'll be able to do it again and again and again. The fact that they knew this is the way Antamic kicks, this is the way that he does it. But also, and I, I wasn't going to say it, and then when you talked about like how predictable it are, you know, like players that you know they're going to do it, but it's not what you're expecting Antamic to do during the Six Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think he's going to lose it. Um, is, I, I don't know how much we talk about La Rochelle and, and uh, Rassing, but there was a moment in, the, in that match where Finn Russell got the ball and he, he looked over at whoever was beside him, I can't remember who it was, and he pointed up in the air. And then he did the dummy. And then he dummied himself and he got tackled and then he turned it over and I was like, that's the losing of the match right there. Rassing are ahead, but they've given... They've given what's what's her name? They've given La Rochelle an in, and from that moment, I think La Rochelle scored from that, and then La Rochelle never looked back. And I know Racing had an opportunity to win it, but you're kind of going, Jesus Christ, that's Finn Russell all over. That like given the opportunity to do something a little bit daft, uh, a little bit flashy, and all about himself, he will take that. And it just over the course in a team game, over the course of like long enough that is not going to work more often than it does work. Whereas a team like Leinster, and even a team like Toulouse with Entamic, like they just don't, like Entamic makes those decisions that are good on his own, but even even allowing for where Gibson Park and Sexton were standing, upping the ball in playtime against Leinster when you're Toulouse is like just a recipe for, 
you're just gonna like you're just making it more and more that you're gonna lose. But then you have to say, Leinster are so well rounded, so difficult to play against that kind of like like Howard to lose gonna beat them. Well, I mean, also just even to row in on the to lose discipline improvising thing, like they're you know sort of at the end of the game when they're re- it's really broken and they're they're kind of throwing the ball around more and it looks quite it's still done with like a set of sort of house rules though like it's because they know everyone has been trained it's to lose you you're like kind of expected to, to in certain circumstances to be able to keep the ball alive mm, yeah like it they also tried to keep the ball alive because they didn't want to have a load of rocks yeah. like i i was saying previously i think last week about they didn't have time to uh to train up the weaknesses that they'd showed against Munster, like getting turned over all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. But they did counter it by just passing a lot and passing out of contact, passing before contact. There were far fewer rooks in that game than there were against Toulouse. So they did they, they did address it very cleverly. Um, they just didn't have, they didn't have enough on the day. And asking that sort of rhetorical question about how are they going to beat Leinster at the... The beat Leinster by being to lose. Like I turned around to you when Leinster were thirteen points up and less than ten minutes, but just less than ten minutes gone. gone Jesus, until Leinster get uh, like more than fourteen points ahead, I'm still going to be nervous enough because like these guys have eight minutes to score a try, and they can, and then they've got injury time to score another one, and and, and they, the momentum has shifted, and the then. momentum has shifted, and the other teams got nervous, and they can, and you and. I know, like the Real Madrid, but like if you if you look at Real Madrid's passage through this Champions League, it's very difficult to think of any other team, bar maybe Juventus. But Juventus, like Italian football, hasn't been that strong for I don't know 10, 20, 20, 20 years longer um, as Spanish football is. But and that just that that, but even Juventus aren't Real Madrid. Like they don't have twelve European cups. Like just that that unshakable Hulk Hogan-esque uh, that fixes in, you know, belief. They have 13, unbelievably. They have 13. 13. Yeah. I thought they were going they for 13. They won three in a row, yeah. as well. Yeah. So really they, won, they won the one that was a decimal, and they won three. Yeah. And so, three. in that game, we, yeah, I I was thinking that as well, because we were sitting right beside one another, obviously, and sort of talking about it. It's like, there was a kick, a long kick, and they went for length, and they missed touch, and it was a penalty, just after they scored the mall try on the, yes, on the yeah, opposite yeah, yeah. side. And you're going, if they get that into touch in the 22 and they go over for another mall or, or certainly a series of penalties which might result in another try because it looked like the ref had decided certainly that Leinster couldn't cope with the um, Toulouse pack and whether, you know, I didn't get enough close enough view. And then they're six points behind with the best player in the world and a team that is like, you know, turning the momentum around. And exactly, it was like, they're not dead yet until, you know, Ross, the penalty that Ross... Uh, kicked, mm-hmm. made it seven a uh, sixteen point differential, and you're going like, Grand, this, this game is over now." Um, but I mean, that's the I guess the the strength of Toulouse, and just the the reason when you give away seven points for for very cheaply at the start, that's where that kind of thing can Toulouse happen. Toulouse is sort of beloved as well. Sorry, this yeah. is not a non sequitur, but like people across Europe, like. They look at Toulouse as like mm, the rightful king. <laughs> you know, nobody, oh. nobody gives out about Toulouse. Nobody goes, oh, Toulouse with all the fucking money. Like I used to give out about Toulon, or uh, 
or Saracens are just like pack of cheats. Uh, and I, I was never really anti. Like I thought Saracens were, Jesus, that's a good team. They're incredibly hard to play against. But a lot of people really hated Saracens. But like Toulouse is like, mm-hmm, they are our betters. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's like they deserve to live in that big castle and, <laughs> yeah. and have me like tilling the fields and then giving me half their stuff. They're just, you know, they are just better. They're churning out there like, you're just going, oh, what sort of player are you? Are you a Toulouse back or are you a Toulouse forward? <laughs> um, are there any other particular performances you want to oh, mention? Oh, God, yeah. I, 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 suppose, go on I think all we've talked about is the ebb and flow of psychic energy. I think if you talk about the mechanics of it. Yeah. Well, I Will, will we trade places and do this one? And I'll talk about Henshaw and you can talk about Van der Fleer. <laughs> yeah. I thought Henshaw was just amazing. I didn't know. It came out after the match. He'd been ill uh, during the week. God, not a trace of it. Like, he had a blinding game. That was where I felt that they were, Toulouse were weakest, was was uh, was in the centres. Like, Pete Aki is quite good, and, and I can't remember the name of the other fellow, the tall 13. Furak, I think. Um... And that neither of them had bad games, but like the difference with Robbie Henshaw, every time he got on the ball, it's like he did something wonderful. Uh, and then his defense is obviously sensational as well. Now, he didn't have to deal with as many threats uh, down his channel as he has in, in, in previous games, but his, uh, like, this is a guy who has had a, like a relatively tough year since coming back from the Lions. Huge, huge season last year, great Lions tour. And like so many other players, he comes back. Uh, from the lines, the tour is so in, intense. Every training session, you're trying to put in like a hundred percent effort. You don't know your roommates. You don't know the routine is completely different. You, there's so much press and hype involved. You're meeting new journalists and things like that. And then, like the games, every team that you play is out to make you look shit. And every journalist who's not from your country is trying to get you dropped. You know, so it's really intense stuff aside from the big physical games in the test matches. So both he and Jack Conan have had potted seasons compared to previous seasons, but they seem to have recuperated at this end of the season because I thought Conan had his best game of the season for Leinster as well. And uh, and it's a great sign that he's right back in the mix of his best form. So I, I talk about Josh now. Yes. Josh's defence really surprised me because the, he was tackling bigger pretty much all the Toulouse forwards are bigger than him. And he made a few real gain line stoppers. Um, so quite apart from his attacking threat, and he scored a try, um, but you've you've come to expect that of Van der Fleer, um, that he, he, he'll break tackles and that he'll carry very aggressively and that he'll pump his legs after contact. His, now he's doing that and his defense has got miles better, whereas he used to be a soak tackler all the time. And it was it was as if off. I always say this about Josh that he was sort of told, no, no, you need to put in like thirty tackles, and he'd soak. And then somebody just said, no, 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 look, just just make more moments. And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure, I, I can do that. Um, and he just went out and made more bigger moments. Absolutely incredible performance. I I think the player that stood out the most for me is uh, going back to our old friend the. Uh, Small, relatively small, relatively unathletic second row for the second week in a row. Um, after talking about the merits of uh, Fiona and Richley and his and his uh, his fitness, was was Ross Maloney and his his ball skill, and then Leo Cullen's 
been quoted as saying, oh, he's the glue and, you know, he calls the line outs and he captains and he was the one pointing into the corner when uh, Meafu had been sent off, Meafu had been sent off to say, like, we've got a, we've got a mismatch here, like, we've, we've eight on seven, we can, we can end the match before half time um, by taking on, you know, by, we've got these guys outnumbered. Um, but I, I think more than anything, it was his work in at first receiver and you're talking about his ball handling and then collectively, like how how um, how across the team Leinster are all able to do it. And what really struck me was the coaching, like how, how much better Ross Maloney has got. And the, fa- the reason I say the coaching is because how many players have improved is, is a question that Des will often ask about a coach. So, like, with Matt O'Connor there, how many players have, have, have improved? With Johan van Graan there, like, how many players are better than when he went in? And it's a great, and it's subjective, but it's a great sort of a key performance indicator. If you, if you, if you like, if you're in the job of deciding the fate of a coach, so, like, if you're in the front office of an organization, a sports organization, how many players have got better is one of the ways that you can objectively look at a coach. Because the players will go, oh, like, you know, the dressing rooms, you know, what's the coach like? Well, he's really good. Because they're in that collective environment where you don't go criticising, you don't go speaking out of turn outside it. But, and the other comparison is Tom Ahern. Like, Thomas Ahern was, uh, he was a, he's a basketball player when he's younger. Like, he has that handling ability. He has that athletic ability. And he's not been asked to do any of that sort of stuff. But you're there going, Jesus, can you imagine if he'd been playing in that Leinster squad for the last three years? What a player he would be. Um, but the fact is, he hasn't been. And Ross Maloney is the one who's put in the work. And I, I thought he had a, a stunning match. Because it completely changes what your idea of what a second row has to be like into one of what they could be like. And again, to sort of... Uh, step it back a bit from just that match when when Leinster got beat by La Rochelle and haven't been beat by Saracens the previous year you know all the hand ringing is like well we just don't have Will Skelton in yeah. particular we we can't go out and buy this guy he's too expensive he wouldn't get signed off we just don't have this enormous man and the kind of look we've been saying this recently, and like, to be a second row, you need to be absolutely enormous and really strong. And then you kind of go, well, look, we don't have an absolutely enormous, really strong man, so we're not going to ask our second rows to play like that. There are some parts of the role that have to be fulfilled, such as scrummaging, mm, mauling, such as mauling, where that profile is really, really helpful. But that doesn't have to be. You don't try to mimic that if you've got a small, relatively light uh, second row. You, you, you structure your game to be completely different. And the, the thing that I was saying to you is that like Leinster are like Japan in that way. And I don't mean like Japan, the national rugby team, although they do have a lot of characteristics yeah. of that, but like Japan, the nation where you got like, we've no resources, like we've no oil, <laughs> you know, we've no coal or we've, we've no gas. So we have to give prominence to hard work industry and based on like techno- being technologically superior. Mm. And again, like to, to loop it back to the principled approach that Leinster take, that's, that's almost like what Leinster, like you go back to that policy idea and you go, what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses? And you go, well, let's, let's just avoid the weaknesses here. Yeah, We're and not going to take a team like Toulon on in an arm wrestle. It's not something that 
Um, like it's not something that Leinster are saying we're always going to have two fleet-footed second rows. No, like previously, they signed your man from uh, yeah, Jason South Jenkins. Jason Jenkins. You know, and then they've got Joe McCarthy coming up, who's more of a you know a heavier set second row. And then of course there's another lad coming through, who's magnificent, magnificent animal, special. He's got flares. He's got smoke bombs. Um, so. But it's what we have at the moment, and that's how they're playing away and getting the most out of what we have. Um, and it's like when you talk about players who have improved, you can look further afield and Ross Maloney, uh, Jimmy O'Brien, Hugo Keenan, Josh. Um, you know, there's Dan Sheehan. Like Dan Sheehan, I think, I'm not sure he made, I don't think he made the Irish under 20s in his year. Like Ronan Kelleher and, uh, and Dermot Barron from Munster, I think, were the under 20s hooker. And maybe. Sheehan got in at, at a later stage, but that's a player who has who has made a huge charge into being an international. Gibson in, Park. Gibson, Jesus, the biggest one of all. Like I, I was thinking this previously. I was reading some of the comments on, um, I think it was the, the comments below the Guardian, um, and one of the things that struck me was like, Jesus, that's anybody could have signed Gibson Park. Gibson Park, when Leinster signed him, I think he'd only started fourteen. 14 uh, super rugby games in his career. Now, he'd been a sub in a lot of them, but, like, wasn't an all-black. You know, he wasn't even wasn't even a start and scrum half in super rugby. And the Gibson Park that arrived had real, real points of difference, but he wasn't a good tackler, and he had a really ordinary kicking game, and those have improved, wildly improved. So he's, a, he's that's a, probably the best example of them all, actually. One of the other funny comments on the, the, the guard, like most of it is just, Jesus, dreadful. But there was one funny one that like every week that Leinster, after every week that Leinster win in Europe, their budget goes up by a million. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> like it was just like, oh, Leinster have a budget of 15 million. You go, what? 15 million, 45 players. Our average player has paid 330 grand. It's going to be fucking news to some of them. Have to give credit to the forwards. Let's talk about the other semi-final before we talk about the final. Yeah. Uh, I don't watch an awful lot of top 14 rugby. It may stun some of our listeners (laughs) to know. I'm just going to read out a little quote about this game. La Rochelle and Rassing are the clearest, most exaggerated example of the way rugby is going. Very intense, very collective, very tactical, very physical and very direct. But a short pass, no. A feint, no. A change of pace, no. A one-two, a nutmeg, a back heel. Don't be ridiculous, none of that. The extreme control and seriousness with which both these teams played the semi-final neutralised any creative licence, any moments of skill. Listeners, I will shock you, that was not about that game. That was Jorge Valdano talking about Chelsea and Liverpool in 2007 and saying that a shit hanging on a stick in Anfield would be applauded. That was a fucking awful game of rugby. And if that's what the top 14 is made up of. Well, we had this, we said it before, like a French semi-final. <laughs> they, I listened. They can be dreadful. I listened. This wasn't even a dreadful one. I listened to that bit of the podcast, coincidentally, just after that match had been played, because I, I was driving back from swimming. And uh, you, apt, like, 
if you if you'd watched the match in a crystal ball, you couldn't have described it better than you did uh, last weekend on the pod. It absolutely went to script. Even to the fact that you said Kamiyasha would be uh, Kamiyasha or Bougari, probably Kamiyasha, or maybe that was in a text to us. Will will be yellow carded, and then off he wandered, and I immediately went on to WhatsApp to go. You were absolutely spot on. There he goes, Sayonara. And the funny thing is that the one moment of individuality when the uh, token flare player, now one of one of one of Rassing's a couple of flare players. Didn't just do the fucking thing like every fucking team should have done. Just hands will do it, pass the ball to the oh, other winger, God. and you're in the final, having weathered this insane period where they're down to 13 and 14 men for about 15 minutes. They weathered that out, didn't concede any points, went up the went up the pitch through a series of like really tough, good rugby, and then had a chance to go in the corner and go in the lead with 10 minutes left in a puke game. Passed to most, one of the most reliable finishers in rugby in the last decade. Took it on himself, and then he didn't lose him. They went out, they ended up like getting held up over the line in, in a situation where no one could see the ball, and it was a goal line dropout, kicked it up the p- pitch, La Rochelle got penalties, blah, blah, blah. Just, but even, even that deliciously went to script, your script, where you just go, ah, oh, Rassing are a bunch of absolute flakes. They will find a way to lose this match. And you're looking at it going, tick, They don't even seem that tick, disappointed when tick. they lose. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't, like, it wasn't, I, I thought it, like, it was a bad game and not a dreadful game and surprised. It's probably just because I don't really watch too yeah. many, like, all French clashes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was, it's, it's like a, it does, it, I felt it was, I felt it was, like, quite predictable. Um, and I like being right. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I like, everyone, you know, everyone, yeah, does. everyone does. And so I'd love to be proved wrong. Not really. Like if if I'm really like doubtful about like Leinster or so like Ireland playing a game and go, oh, geez, I just don't think we'd. I'd love to be proved wrong. Yeah, maybe I'd like to be proved wrong. Not really happier being proved right. You know. So um, yeah, there's a this is a, a sidebar, a sidebar to this legal argument. We were. Talking previously, or maybe off off mic, about the size of the forwards involved, and particularly the size of the props involved. Winnie Antonio Sclavi came on for Antonio. He's in Argentine, and those two lads, like 145 and 144, 146 kids, just enormous men. And then one of my favourite players for Racing is Colomb, the big baby. He looks like a giant. <laughs> He looks like a giant toddler. He's so big. And you, it's like his, his, his hooped vest pulled down over his big dumb. But uh, like the size of those guys out there. And um, it's like there is this fascination in, in France. And it's, it's, it has played out in pretty much pretty much exactly in how the teams are ranked in the top 14 with uh like the top the top 7 in in France have like 130 kilo prop at least one and the bottom 7 with the exception of Brieve have no 130 kilo props 130 kilos is the new like 115 kilos you know 20 and a half stone is the new 18 stone in France like i remember when 115 was like the magic number that Paul O'Connell i know he's not a prop but Paul O'Connell had to hit for Gatland like you had to be 115 kilos cuz it's 18 stone and it's like these fucking huge lumps. That's how, that the top fourteen has become so. They've become so prized in the top fourteen. Um, 
Like Toulouse have one in Charlie Farmawina and Racing have two. Um, La Rochelle have two. And you go, and it's no surprise that the game can become slow, turgid even, because those guys can play slow rugby. Um, and especially when the pressure's on, it's like, let's fucking slow it down. Let's go for the scrum pens. And scrummaging, technically, scrummaging has not improved. Sorry, this is a hobby horse of mine. Technically, scrummaging has not improved with the advent of an eight-man bench. Huge props replacing huge props. It's become, I would say, more of a lottery than ever. And I think it's a, I think it's a bad road that Rupi's gone down. Now, sorry, sidebar over. I think it's fair enough to go down that sidebar. I, I mean, is there much else to say about that game now that I've done my little Jorge Valdano thing? Or can I move on to talking about I just found how when Raj was doing his commentary a few years ago, um, and it could have been, geez, could have been before he took on the La Rochelle gig, because I, I think he was, and he was in a studio. He talked about La Duel. And how much of a big deal it is in France, but it that match struck me as very much kind of individuals playing within a kind of a structure, rather than the Leinster machine, which is just everybody gets back into their spot, everybody moves. It's it's just so well coordinated, so well organised, um, and so kind of robotic. Like, or again, like I don't know if. Like that's kind of pejorative. The the French media called it uh, the PlayStation rugby that Leinster were having, but just just that idea of like how just machine, but I don't know, like just machine, like it was that it was. But there's something magnificent about that, like just the rugby's a team just collectivism. Game. Yeah, rugby the, is a team game. The collectivism and the understanding and the ability to interchange. Um, the ability to play so ably with your teammates to exploit, create, and then exploit space. Like that's a like that's one of the most attractive parts of rugby. It's like the the teamwork but between and it can happen in a scrum, obviously, it can happen in a line out. Those are all elements of teamwork. But the ability to create space by uh for example, giving yourself to up to a tackle and slipping slipping the pass out beforehand, knowing that you'll get killed, or by creating establishing three different threats and none of them is the ball carrier and then the ball carrier still has the ball but I suppose throws the dummy and goes through it, it's, it's the premise behind total football isn't it the idea that you can like you, you can play you can play right back but you can also play left mid like you understand the principles of each the principles position. of each position and the different the different technical skills and from having played right back makes you a better left midfielder. Mm-hmm. And but there's no reason why your left midfielder can't go up front and play like right right sided or like what does it take to play in a three up front? What does it take to play in a one up front? Like just that understanding of shape and that understanding of the technical skills. Like that that's Cruyff. Like that's yeah. That that's that's the gig. Rennes you know? Mickles. Rennes Mickles. You know, and I and I think that's the that's kind of the closest sporting analogy I'd put to the way that Leinster play, which is, I guess, a design-led type of... I mean, I mean, you're but it's, I mean that's, it's also... I mean, I, perlers to, no, you know, <laughs> it's fair enough, though. I mean, a long time ago, we had a conversation 
with someone about Leinster were talking about and like looking for literature references to do, to do with football clubs and what would be a good inspirational base. And I think we also ended up coming up with like Bayern and Ajax because they're kind of like European royalty, but they produce a lot of their own players and they like have standards of excellence rather than like Man United are like the biggest club in the world. But you know, it's they're if they're, I mean, I suppose Bayern do get called FC Hollywood, but like United are Disneyland, as Klopp said when he was talking about them before he had the job at Liverpool. And Liverpool are like, as I've constantly said, a soap opera. No, no, they're Munster, a Munster or Liverpool. <laughs> hence, hence the uh, the marketing slogan Munster means more that I keep on seeing in my in Twitter ads, uh, which is you know Liverpool had a marketing slogan. This means more, which people confuse with being some kind of club motto. It was a marketing slogan by New Balance. Um, anyway, Ajax and Bayern, but in particular Ajax, that kind of like systemic approach and the product, the constant production of your own players who have a grounding in the you know in fundamental principles. That's what Leinster are doing, and we move on to the final now. I think I said in my text message to you while assembling an agenda for this. Jeez, I'm talking a lot. Uh, it'll be a travesty if La Rochelle beat this Leinster team in the final by puking it out through scrum penalties and some ref who wants to penalise Leinster all the time. It'll be, it'll be a real damaging thing for rugby because it'll just be like, let's pay more money for more imported beef to grind out. There's loads of ways to win a match. You know, there's loads of ways to win a match and... I don't think they're the that good. Is, a I don't think they're that good a team. That's why they have a crucial game to get into the barrage in the top fourteen this week against. No, Francais. they're not like. Um, La Rochelle are more like Claremont than than like Toulon. Um, in that, like Raymond Rule, there wasn't a huge market for Raymond Rule or Dylan Leeds when they were, you know, going around looking for contracts. It's not Chelsea Colby. It's not Brian Habana. Um, like Bottia was a great pickup, you know. You've got this idiosyncratic player who plays flanker or or inside centre. You know that's most unusual in rugby. Um, now that's not to say that they haven't recruited big names as well. Kerr Barlow is a World Cup winner. Victor Vito is a double World Cup winner. But other players they got in when they were young, like Greg Aldrich, Winnie Antonio. Uh, and the recently retired Kevin Gordon have been with La Rochelle a long time. And I remember, I never thought Winnie Antonio, like I remember when he was famous just for his size. The guy has, has turned himself into an absolutely first-rate international player. Danny Preso is another long-term um, La Rochelle player. They're more, like, what I'm trying to say is like, they're not Galacticos. It's not Toulon. Um, they're a team that has been well-assembled, like, they found value, like when Toulon or when like Claremont got like Julian Bardi and 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 you know for, and uh, the Belgian Portuguese. He was Portuguese and Vincent Dubati was the Belgian. Jamie Cudmore was was from Canada. Like, <laughs> Jail. <laughs> 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 he was in movies, didn't he? he was yeah, his brother, his brother was uh, his brother was uh, Colossus. Yeah, uh, is Colossus. Um, so I think that like. Skelton is obviously a huge name, huge money. Um, Alder is now on huge money. Yeah, Tuera Carbarlo. So look, they, you know, obviously, yeah, yeah the, the prominent guys. But there's a hell of a lot of different ways. And if they are, 
like they're the Skelton does make a huge difference. Like their second row last season was Skelton, a great player, and uh, Roman Sazi, a great captain, like a real Mister Rugby. Three hundred games for for uh, La Rochelle and never capped for France. And they had neither of them in the second row. Sazi came on for the last part of the game, and it's just a huge difference. Um, Am I just part of the problem though? With like it's o- it's okay to get beaten by Toulouse, but it, when. That's not a problem. That's just knowing our place. <laughs> <laughs> but I know, but like, to, at the same time, I think far too much has been made out of Leinster losing to Saracens and La Rochelle in consecutive seasons. I kind of just think their defeats in cup games, I don't think, I think they're built into a grand narrative about how Ireland can or can't do or will never be able to do or Leinster will never be able to do or how the league, the URC or the Pro 14 is never going to service Leinster in some way. I was just like, they're just two games they lost that they could have won. I, I absolutely I, agree with yeah. like, It's a big narrative. Leinster, you know, they won't be happy with their... Like the one against the, the quarterfinal loss against Saracens was just like a fucking disaster. The final, just beaten by a better team in a good game. And the uh, semi-final, La Rochelle was sort of halfway between those two. Nobody has a right to win the European Cup. It's really fucking difficult to win. Mm. Talking about the principles-based approach of Leinster and how well they're able to write themselves, I'm curious as to what Leinster did psychologically because they froze on the day of the Saracens match. But to give Saracens their due and Mark McCall in particular, Saracens completely outthought Leinster. Saracens went in with the plan to beat Leinster. Leinster turned up thinking, if we play as well as we can, we'll beat Saracens. Very different. Very different mindset. So Leinster at Jordan Larmer at fullback. Saracens came up with the kicking game that put Leinster into awkward, difficult positions about where they are in the pitch. But I'd also like to think that that would inform how Leinster have developed because Jordan Larmer isn't a good kicker. Um, now, I'd also like to think that where he's playing at the moment, we'd, we'd see that he's got better through coaching. But now you look at it and you go, geez, like Leinster have a very developed kicking game, that they know what the opposition are going to do when they kick. They know how to counter it. They know where to, where to put players. They didn't have that. So Le- Leinster are better than they were then. But I, I think, but at the same stage, you know, the, the evidence here is like Vin- Vincent Cock and... Uh, or Vincent Cook and Skelton and Jamie George were immense that day. And Leinster didn't have a change-up. Like, Tyke Furlong didn't play that it was, match. It was Tim, Tim Swinson and, and Maro Toje were the second row that day. And Swinson and, Ato- and Atoji, Jesus. Yeah. And then... Um, the South African six, whose name I can't remember. Who's uh, not like an international or anything like that. It's not Berger, is it? No, no, he's just a big... No, no not Schalkberger, but just... Oh, anyway, remember. look, um, but I, I don't, I don't think um, what's his name. I don't think Furlong played that match, and then Jack McGrath gone. So it was very difficult for Leinster to to change up. You know what was a problem in the scrum, and then in the La Rochelle match, um, I think they had their game of the season in in that match. Like, and and I think they prepared very well. Like, I you know O'Gara said afterwards, oh, we knew we had to target like Conan and Henshaw, and we did. And because he won, you're sort of thinking to yourself, shit, like he's really talking, like, you know, what a, what a rugby visionary. I kind of didn't see it like that at the time. Not to say, maybe I just didn't see it, not to say that it didn't happen. But, uh, like, a huge amount went for 
Um, it was an away semi-final. It was an away semi-final, and, and La Rochelle played very well all over the pitch, and I think that they got a lot of confidence from a lot of stuff going, right? And Ohio West had oh, an incredible match. Ohio Best. And as you said, no, but that was the thing, like you yeah. put in, like, is Ohio Best or Ohio Worst? This is how you make Ohio West. And, like, at the weekend, you're sort of shaking your head going, Jesus, like, you're never going to win. No, with, the, in, in, with that the, guy playing out in half. the two finals that he played in that season, like he ended up, I think it was four from seven in one game and one from three in another game from from place ball. You know, so fifty percent over the two games, and basically, like, this, it's not going to win your French <laughs> knockout games. And in ours, he was like five from six from the team plus a drop goal, and just basically had a cracker of a game. So La Rochelle are not the same team that they were. I think like Will Skelton is out. So even if he comes back for the final, he's not fit. Uh, Tuera Carbarlo is out with a broken hand. Even if he comes back for the final, like how long will he last? He, he's not fit. Bryce Doolan might be back, but hasn't played that much rugby. Dumaru has left. Dumaru has left. So Kevin Gordon's retired. So they're not the same force that they were. So being a champ, no, being a, they're not a champion team, but they're a very, very competitive team. They might stick with Leinster for longer than you'd think, just with like muscle memory and competitiveness and rope a dope and defense and like a, an awkward tactical plan. But I can't see it lasting, or they might get blown out of it. But like 19 times out of 20, Leinster win this match. Jeez, you that optimistic? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, as you know, I'm a, I'm a nervous flyer when it comes to finals. <laughs> I've actually never been to a Leinster Heineken Cup final. Uh, because every time I go and see them play in France, they fucking lose. Well, they're they're playing they're playing Stade Francais this weekend. Now they're playing them at home. At home, yeah. But they have to win it. They're seventh on points. Castor third. Toulouse are sixth. Yeah. But like none of the, none of these teams that are around, like none of them are knocking each other out. Like Castor playing Perpignan, right? So if Cast win, Cast. they there's no advantage to Perpignan being beaten in that. Breve are 12th, Toulouse are playing them away. If if Toulouse win, if Breve beat Toulouse, it's really unlikely. If Toulouse beat Breve, there's no advantage to La Rochelle in that. Bordeaux are playing Lyon, right? So oh, that's, that's the only one. Four, that's it? two versus five. That's the only one that kind of works out towards... Uh, sorry. And then Montpellier are playing Racing. So those two... But even even with that, like La Rochelle are, are far enough behind. Really, who they're competing with are Toulouse. sixth and fifth. Yeah, they're, they're competing with Toulouse and Lyon. Now Lyon are playing away to Bordeaux, so maybe that works for La Rochelle. That'll be a fucking but then, stinky poo of a but game. Do you, know, do you know what La Rochelle's last match is? Toulouse away. Lyon away. Oh. So, <laughs> a grand brown trumpet you know, of a so game. You, so you're kind of going, and that's that's a week after the Heineken Cup final. So, like, if, if you're La Rochelle, you're going, Jesus, we've got to play... Where's their bread and butter? Where's your bread and butter? We've got to play what's, what's kind of a quasi-knockout match in order to give ourselves a shout against Leon, who we're almost directly in comparison with. And do you know who Toulouse's last match is against? Biritz ah! at home. <laughs> so, like, that's got five points written all over Biritz for Toulouse. Biritz are bottom of the table, are they? Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Oh, but we... <laughs> They're in the cab, are they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the cab. <laughs> Gathering lake cobwebs. <laughs> Rat la plage. <laughs> Le saison est yeah, finie. Yeah, they are. Like, they, have, uh, they just don't have any 130 kilo props. Okay, there you go. 
So look, that, that, that's what La Rochelle are looking into. Like, that's their next three weeks. And that's just to get into the barrage to play, like to play away against the third place team. Yeah. You know, like it's, 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 a, it's a tough one for them. So that could be, mental- La Rochelle versus Cass could be another fart of a game. No, they're not, they're not playing. No, if they, if they're Oh, sorry, to, sorry, sorry. That barrage match. The barrage being oh, cast. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just think whereas Leinster go to play a match against Munster, that it doesn't matter like what happens other than you're playing your biggest rivals. But like in, in the in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. No, there's like in the grand scheme of things, like that game to Leinster is utterly meaningless. There's nothing good that can come out of it. Do you think Sirocco will play? Did he get that type of far in the depth chart? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it'd be I'm not sure he'll definitely pick. He'll be Sean O'Brien, yeah, the yeah. third. Um, I think it'd be good. Pittsburgh's Sean O'Brien. It could be good for him to get a, a, a public airing uh, after his like stealing the hearts of the people oh, against the yeah. Sharks. Not a finger with point his, going with, on with, his, with his refusal to. to <laughs> he kept on kicking out of the pin. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me so much of Kevin Nash. <laughs> I, with, I, the, I, with the head thrown, I'm, flicking the hair back. I'm, you know, obviously the obviously the good work that him and his brother are doing, yeah. raising loads of money as well for uh, for the, like Ukraine. No, uh, I, I think I think you know I think if he got a game, it could be sort of the making of a you know a, another person oh, a personality that like Lencer's answer. Lencer's answer to Peter O'Mahony. He's big line playing number six doesn't make a lot of tackles. <laughs> Focus of attention in France is their gargantuan pack with three specialist props in the front row. Pace may have been sacrificed for power up front, but there's enough speed behind the scrum to enliven any game. And if he has a mind to, Manel at fly half can release the exciting talents of Sella, Blanco and Lafond. Commentators at Lansdowne Road, Bill Beaumont and Nigel Stone. Leinster have lost uh, Felipe Contopomi for the second time. He's gone back to work with Cheka in Argentina. And there's another uh, departure from the... Leamy. Uh, Leamy, Leamy is Leamy's going gone down. to... Munster. He's also headed south. <laughs> <laughs> he is also, yeah. Um, what are they going to do? I was wondering about that um, because particularly the, the Felipe job, the kind of the roles are sort of at different ends of the spectrum in that... The, the contact skills role is an, is, is an ideal role for a recently retired player and a recently retired forward, more, more than likely, who's bringing like a sort of a technical expertise, but also like a, a bit of energy to it. Um, now, I, I, would, I would sort of caution against that by saying that Hugh Hogan, who was Leamy's prede- predecessor, um, had, was a club coach, um, and like Hugh Hogan was a very good rugby player. He was captain of Mary's when they won the AL, but he he, he wasn't a guy who was a pro. So you people would look at him did. differently. I, I can't remember actually if I did. He was in Trinity around the same time. But anyway, he um and he, he went on to the Scarlets, but he they and he was the first in that role. So they created that role for him. But anyway, the, the point about that was he's coming from a coaching background where Leamy is a pro, but Leamy was coaching domestically as well. So like Leamy understood the challenges of putting on a session before going into the pro game and expecting all everybody's like that. He sort of knew like it isn't always like that in the same way that Hugh Hogan knows, knew that it, it isn't always like that. But both of them had the ability to sort of 
scattered across. So the names that came to mind for that job from were Dan Levy and Sean O'Brien. So two former Leinster back row guys, both retiring this season for their own reasons. Is one of them a good coach? Or are you looking to get somebody from the coaching pathway to go transition from the amateur game? Like are you looking to get Andy Wood or James Blaney to become your 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 breakdown or your sort of your technical skills type of coach? Um Whereas the the attack coach job is is a bigger one, so I I think it's a bigger one because I don't know how much longer Stuart Lancaster will be. There's more chance of Stuart Lancaster leaving Leinster just because he's done such a good job. He's so high profile. I think he could be offered a job at England, which I think he might take because it's international rugby and it's England, um, and he's English. Um, that he might find it difficult to turn down, and I know both of you disagree with me there, so. I think that that role is a possible inheritor of the head coach role, but I also think there's more to it than coaching, you know, contact skills. Um, I think you have to come up with starter plays, what Felipe does, but I also think like it's it's a role that like could develop more and more. And the the two guys that that jump out to me are Noel McNamara, who was with Leinster. Coach Irish under twenties was very good and is now with the South. Sh- oh, sorry, the Natal Sharks or whatever they're called. Whatever that Sharks, the South Sea Sharks and Seashell Sharks, Seashells, Seashells, Seashells Sharks, or uh, Felix Jones, who you know has has coached at a pro level already with Munster, who is coached in a World Cup winning, but like who's from Booterstown, you know, so like you're kind of associated with Munster. And uh, and and South Africa, but like he's Leinster's own, and both of those guys are Irish guys who have pro level experience. Um, and McNamara is a Clare guy, but he's he's coached at Leinster, whereas Jones has said is, is from Booterstown. So I and it doesn't it doesn't have to be Irish, but I just think that it's 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 quite a large portion of your of your brains trust. Yeah, just to no, go, we're going full Jerry Bingo and the ebb and flow cycle again. Empty and the <laughs> well, that's a Murray Max said. Assuredly, yeah. assuredly. We have, uh, we'll have to whiff a cord out this one up. <laughs> the other, the other name was, was just I just thought of there when you were talking about McNamara was uh, Richie Murphy, who's obviously Irish twenties coach this year and did, in my opinion, an exceptionally good, an exceptionally astounding job with the twenties. Who I looked at the table recently for some reason to try score like obviously they did a grand slam. They won a Grand Slam. They did a Grand Slam. They made a Grand Slam. They made a Grand Slam. They are a Grand Slam. Reinitiate on Grand Slam. <laughs> <laughs> um, scored a huge amount of tries. You know, in the in the tough games, particularly against uh, France, they found a way to win right at the death. A real season highlight, a life highlight for Ben Brownlee before he goes to work for PwC or possibly one of the other big four. I'd say PwC. Um but then in the other games, which they came back against England, another tough game, and they actually ran out very handsome winners. The games against Italy was fractious. They stuck in it. And then the two games against Wales and Scotland, they ran away with and kept on piling on the points. Like he won games over a five season, a five uh, game series. He won games in sort of all the ways you can win games. And very impressively, I felt that the team obviously take huge credit for him, but also the coaching team. Um, now, that was 
to my knowledge, the first time he's been a head coach. Uh, he's been a skills coach before for first Leinster. Kicking and skills, kicking first, kicking and skills, and skills with Ireland, and then head coach with, uh, with the Irish 20s. Backs coach with Leinster, I don't know if, in my opinion, definitely a step up from head coach of any underage team. Um, but I'm not sure if that's the way that the IRFU would see it, if they want a piece move from that important, important Oh, they totally year. do. Now, maybe they wanted it, like McNamara did the 20s job, so that Mike Ruddock used to just be the 20s coach, and he was always there, and then New Sephora, I remember writing about this, New Sephora came in and said, we want that to be part of our coaching pathway, where somebody's going to do it for two seasons, and then they're gone. Mm. Um Carolyn did it for a couple of seasons. Carolyn did it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So Carolyn did it, and then... Malone did it. And then uh, McNamara did it, and now Murphy's doing it. But they're rotated out. This is, like, it's a step up the progression, and it it gives them what it does. Um, So I I just think it's, it's, it's a big job for an Irish coach because you look at the, the Munster coaching panel, like you look, you look at Leamy coming in for Ferreira, you look at Mike Prendergast coming back from overseas for Larkham, uh, and maybe not direct likes for likes, but like pretty close. Oh yeah, it's a and job. Yeah. you go, this is, this is, this is kind, this is the way it should be because coaching is such a big thing for Irish rugby that like you see how much, you see how good Leinster have become through coaching and you see and you see how, how bad they can become as, quickly and you see how astutely for the for the most part the provincial coaching appointments have been made like yeah. Andy Friend has been good um, Kieran Keane was really bad and they, they called it they after called a season they yeah. were like this isn't working yeah yeah but I was just thinking like you see how, how good how much benefit a good coach can do in the Joe Schmidt year and then you see the Joe Smith three years at Leinster, and then you see like almost as though it was an exercise. You see how much damage that an inefficient and an ineffective coach can do in Matt O'Connor. Yeah. You know, it's like coaching is really the most important thing. Aside from everything, like, sorry, taking into account everything, finances, players, the best thing that you can have is a good coach. And bet, you know, or a good coaching team. Oh, definitely, yeah. Biggest return in investment. Yeah. Apart from a hundred and thirty-five kilo prop. <laughs> oh yeah. Or three well, if you're well, my hundred and sixty kilo prop. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you could get a hundred and sixty kilo coach. <laughs> <laughs> I bring myself on. <laughs> Digs like a demented mole there. Someone needs to stop him. Um Josh Vanderfleer, Hugo Keenan, and Kaylin Doris. The and lunch, Mac Hansen. The lunch lady. Uh, and Mac Hansen are all up for the R-P-I-P-P-O-T-Y, with a ripipity, <laughs> as I, <laughs> I refer to it, as uh, all, um, the, all, the Los, all of those Leinster players and Mac Hansen are all on provincial. Yeah, I, I said that to you. That was the first thing that struck me was that, like, um, all four players up, like voted by their own peers as the best player in Ireland. They're all on provincial con, not a central contract player amongst them. Does throw up the question of like why? Um, but secondly, and more importantly, you got to get a better name. And like the rug- it's a, rugby players of Ireland, players player of the year. It's a really important. It's award. not of the year. It's of the season. 
Yeah, it's a really important award. It's one of the best awards you can win. Like Six Nations Player of the Year is good to win, but it's it's a it's like a phone in eighteen hundred number or something like that, which in my don't like those. I've a, I've a, uh, like I have an, a, like a rating, like a podium for it. Like players, player is one. Riders player is first loser, silver medal, and then supporters player is shameful bronze. That is the way to go. I'm in one year up in Ulster. John Cooney won all three, and you're going wow, the trifecta. You know that is like play the anthem, turn sideways, and all you're seeing is Cooney's faces. <laughs> but the players player is the one that counts the most, and we had this we had this discussion. I am. Um, I was on my way into work texting you back and forth about like, we've got to get that award with a proper name and honor it so that you know when you won the such and such award. Like there's presence, the Dally Messenger Award uh, in, in NRL, the John Eales Medal in Australia. The Heisman. The Heisman, Heisman Trophy. The Heisman, yeah, they don't call it. Oh, it's the SEC College's the Most Valuable Player of the Season Award. Make it a fucking, let's get it. Give it a good name. Give it a good name. Name it after some. And who should they name it after? This is the big question. The Bodfather. Well, you'd also suggested East and Asewa, but that might be that might be more appropriate for baby. I, I was thinking of Leinster's a, a, a Leinster award. A Leinster yeah. award. Oh yeah, no, no. Geez, you couldn't Leinster, you couldn't name an no. Irish award after a Fijian. No, but Kiwi. like we were we were throwing around names earlier. So like I was thinking Gibson. Kyle. McBride. And then I was just thinking, how much do I love the Nordies? <laughs> <laughs> but for the Rugby Players Ireland one, formerly the Arupa Award, that was that's a that's for the professional. Like Rugby Players Ireland is, is the professional players. So I think it's Theo Driscoll Award, who's as the strongest claim of any Irish rugby player to be the greatest player of all time. And like that's what that's what the Australians did when they named it the John Eels Medal. And the John Eels medal is so much like, oh, he was Australian Rugby Union's Rugby Player of the Season. It's such a, he was the John Eels medal winner. Michael Hooper was the John Eels medal winner. <laughs> yeah. Again. After George Smith. <laughs> After George Smith. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I'm a, I, I, I mean, obviously there's uh, co- commercial naming rights come into it, but I... But love- you can call it... You, listen, let me start you there, because you can call it the uh, Accenture... O'Driscoll medal. The TikTok well, Brian O'Driscoll. Yeah. He probably wouldn't be allowed to be calling it anything other than HSBC Brian O'Driscoll. <laughs> <laughs> Elon Musk could sponsor it as the Twitter Brian O'Driscoll. Twitter, say what you want, as long as it's highly opinionated, <laughs> preferably hate filled, <laughs> massively divisive. Uh, but just though, I mean, I, I've been doing a lot of. Wikipedia deep diving on various things to do with French rugby recently, and they're obviously they're they love naming their stadiums after you know after people, and uh, I think it's a I think it's great the, the tradition of like I absolutely agree, and it it just feels like it's like oh that's something you know it has to be someone old you can never you can never name it after someone who was born you know 
after 1930 or after 1910 almost yeah. it's like oh all these stadiums are like sort of victorian era uh, artifices or like you yeah know, the early, corinthian sportsman yeah yeah exactly the olympic hey. era and then so we have to name them after like young men who died in the first or second world war or like some lad who was a legend at the founding of the club like santiago bernabeu and it's like you never name something after someone new but i think they should call lakelands mick hipwell stadium <laughs> They called uh, the ACT called one of their stands the Gregan Larkham yeah, stand. Yeah, really but, uh, like that. Liverpool called it Dagley stand, which is makes me so happy. And uh, John West, when he was uh, in Trinity, always claimed that they named the West Stand in Lansdowne. <laughs> <laughs> which I have line. to say got funnier and funnier the more he told it. <laughs> but we were talking about like I think it's such like rugby isn't faking its history. Ruby has a long, distinguished history. The provinces, uh, like, they weren't always as popular as they are now, but, like, they go a hell of a long way back. Uh, Irish rugby goes a hell of a long way back, and I think it's a, a really positive thing. I think it gives the award an awful lot more meaning uh, if, it, if it has a name attached to it. Um, maybe that's being mean sentimental. I, I think sentimentality in this instance is really helpful and good. Positive. I also think giving things names uh, romanticizes them and, you know, it burns them into people's imagination. I think, you know, FIFA have come up with a multitude of different things to try and compete with France football magazines, Ballon d'Or, yeah. the Golden Ball. And no one fucking goes, oh, how many of uh, FIFA's the best or FIFA World Player of the Year did someone win? They go, how many Ballon d'Ors did you win? Because it's called the Golden Ball and it's in French and it sounds cool. Like, yeah. just give it a name and build the like story around it even further. Call it the Brian O'Driscoll Award. Yeah, but these, it has meaning. Like, it's not just like all branding exercise. Like, it's a, big important award to be voted as the best player in the entire country by your peers like that must feel fantastic mm. you know and it's it's strange also how much like uh in the profession area as well it's it's i think maybe the reason we're talking about you naming it after brother just because he was one the, the few players who would have been like it's kind of like almost a procession for him for over uh, over a number of years but like Year to year, like people put their hand up and have. Drake only won it once. There you go. Mm. Sexton's never won it. Even when he won International Player of the Year, uh, Keith Earls won it that year. Like Keith Earls had an amazing season. But it's really interesting to look back over the year, over the the the, the list of uh, award winners. Um, I I find that it's it makes you think of like, oh, he was fucking great that year. Johnny O'Connor was brilliant that year. You know, Tommy Bow was so good in two different years. Darius won it twice. Paulie won it. You know, and you're going like, this. It's a it's a great award. Like it's a really big award. It should be, uh, it should be treasured, and it should be more like honor given to it. You know, and I think the way you do that is by linking it to like the greatest players. Uh, I really like it, and I think that the uh, the union did a, a really good thing when they named. The Young Player of the Year award after uh, the late Nevin Spence, and again, that's that to me has a, a big meaning. Yeah, you know.